0: Hi, this is Robert Gowen. You're listening to the Mentors for Military podcast, and I'm joined by Mike Pritz and Kat Kalin, and we have a special guest today, Matt Johnson. And uh, Matt, you're not only a former soldier, uh, you're also a former police inspector, and you're now a current author, and I should say a number one Kobo selling author. So congratulations on that.
1: Thank you very much, Rob. That's very kind. It's made my retirement a lot more um, interesting, shall we say.
0: Oh, I bet. <laughs> So now you spent how many years within the British Army before you separated? Because you had mentioned that you had retired.
1: Yeah, three. I did, I did three. I did, I did what? Um, well, five altogether. I did a three year short service commission and, and a couple of years in what we call the territorial army. Um, I'm not sure what the American equivalent is, but it's part time when you're part time.
0: Yeah, it's probably a reserve or guard, is what we, we would call it, depending upon whether it's federal or state. Yeah while you were on active duty you were in the cold war era and it was really just a lot of field duty showing up and getting ready for whatever yeah. might happen
1: yeah, uh, a, lot of, a lot of my peers at the time felt that um we were simply playing at soldiers it, <laughs> it, um we spent a lot of time in germany doing exercises um pretending to fire at the, the russian threat pr- pretending to prepare for the russian threat to preparing to deal with the Russian threat. And of course, you know, everybody thought to himself, well, you know, if, if, if this Russian threat ever materialized, our contribution would be irrelevant anyway, because it would just go nuclear very quickly. So um, a, a lot of people at the time felt, well, we like the idea of soldiering, we like the idea of what you did, but it was it was almost play acting in those days. Obviously things have changed considerably now. And so a lot of my peers um, thought, well, policing is real life. You you get to deal with real incidents, with real situations, with real people. And it offers the the, uh, the live interaction that you're looking for, um, potentially that you were looking for when you joined the military.
0: So now when you went into that, we were talking that you didn't go right into becoming a police inspector. You actually had to w- earn your way up, whereas now I I'm assuming that some of your credit or some of the training that you did within the military is transferable to uh, becoming a policeman? Or is it still that you've got to start off kind of at the bottom ring?
1: You have to start off right at the bottom. Okay. And, I mean, you, you could be um, an army officer, a private soldier, a non-commissioned officer. It wouldn't make any difference. The, the day you sign and you join the police, you start at the lowest rank, which is constable. So you're out on the street walking the beat, uh, you're not allowed to drive police cars. You're not allowed to carry weapons or anything like that. You're unskilled, untrained, and uh, we call them a probationary constable.
0: You, you said no weapons as well.
1: Uh, no, you, you wouldn't carry anything. So, so, you would be escorted by um, a supervising constable who would guide you. He's called a parent constable. Wow. So, so So, so you're you're literally guided from from the day one. So. Um, you obviously learn quite rapidly as you go along.
2: Now the public knows that you're unarmed, correct?
1: Yes, yes.
2: So I, I mean, how do you? This may sound s- stupid, but how do you defend yourself? Like with, and I may I'm being completely stereotypical right now, but do you have like a club?
1: <laughs> you yeah. know, that you
2: go after people
1: with? <laughs> you have. You, that, you had a, um, a piece of um, wood made of um, soft wood. A paddle. Which, Tucked into a, a small pocket in your trousers, which was called a truncheon. It wasn't very hard because it was made of soft wood. And the only thing it was really effectively used for was for um, uh, taking the tops off of um, bottles of beer. <laughs> wow. Uh. If you hit someone hard with it, it would break. So, so when,
2: uh, when, did you, when would you graduate to the ability to use an actual firearm?
1: You had to specialize. After several years of working, the you, you, first two years you'd be spent as a probationary constable. Um, and then if you were so minded, you could apply to become what um, was one of our specialist firearms branches. But they didn't patrol. Uh, they were called out to deal with incidents. And it was only many years later, um, after I'd gone through um, several years as a constable, several years as a sergeant, then became an inspector. After several years of having done that, that um, the police over here introduced what we call armed response vehicles. So for the first time, we started seeing armed officers patrolling. Uh, up until that time, yes, you're absolutely right. All all we had to protect ourselves was our voice and this silly little stick that we carried in our pockets.
2: Uh, just a question, sorry. This is just so interesting to me. How in... and. <laughs> How does that, I mean, was that effective not having armed? I mean, does it, is the crime rate lower? I mean, knowing that who's supposed to protect you is not armed, but I mean, does that kind of, how does that, how does that work over there it, with your...
1: It essentially works because the, our population know that their police are unarmed. Their police are not, are not seen, mostly, this, I'm going back to then, it's, it's different now. But in those days, it used to be that you weren't seen as a threat. You were seen as a peacemaker, as a problem solver. So um, it was policing by consent rather than policing by coercion. So people would, they knew you weren't armed. They knew that all you had available was a radio to call for help. So you had strength of numbers, but you didn't have any weaponry. Um, but things changed because um, you know, the public changed. Crime trends changed violent levels changed the amount of armed crime changed and and officers started getting hurt so
0: what what age were you when you went into the uh, police force
1: 22 Uh,
0: 22 so when you were 25 that's when the regent's park bomb went off so that was only a few short years later so at that point were you already into being able to carry a firearm or were you still kind of in that transitional mode
1: I never carried a firearm on patrolling policing, never did. Um, in the whole of my time in the police, I was authorised to carry a firearm in certain situations, but I never carried one as a patrolling officer, if you've got if you right difference. So, um, for example, if we if we were doing a stakeout for uh, an, an operation, a robbery that was something by happened, then I might have been authorised to carry a weapon in those kind of situations. But for going out on the street patrolling, no, I never, ever carried anything more than a what we call an ASP, a telescopic steel baton. That's the deadliest weapon I ever carried.
0: So when you went and started investigating the Regent's Park bomb and everything, that at that time frame, you were... I mean, you were unarmed, coming into a pretty dangerous situation, I would assume. I mean, because during that bombing, the Royal Green Jackets Band was playing and performing when it happened. It was a kind of an IED explosion that had nails. Yeah, yeah.
1: On the day, I was actually in plain clothes. I was working on what we call a CRD car. Um, CRD stands for Criminal Investigation Department. So I was working on an unmarked car. We were doing a stop in an area called Camden Town in North London. And Camden Town is... Um, as the crow flies, perhaps a quarter of a mile from Regent's Park. We were out of the car, stopping and talking to some people, um, when we heard this boom in the distance. Now, in, in normal circumstances, you'd have thought, what, what the hell was that? But that very morning, a bomb had gone off in Hyde Park, um, where soldiers on horseback had been um, travelling through Hyde Park and they'd been subject of a car bomb. So that had happened in the morning, as soon as we heard the boom of course we thought it's another bomb. But being any big city, um, when you're at street level and you hear this massive explosion you haven't got the first idea where it's come from. And, and so like what we had to do was we had to just get into the police car, say what we'd heard and of course there were hundreds of other officers reporting the same thing from different places. Um, and then the emergency calls started to come through, indicating that it had been in Regents Park and that it was at the bandstand where the Royal Game Jackets were playing. And so what we did was um, we we started to make our way there.
0: Goodness, that, that must have been pretty frightening at that time frame. And then, I don't know, again, from coming from our perspective of typical police officers having firearms coming to the situation to investigate, it's it's much different situation. It was a few years after that, I guess, that there was a shooting where you also lost a dear friend. And then not too long after that, you were also present at the Baltic Exchange bombing that took place in central London. You have several different situations and huge public types of bombing situations that you had come across in your span of your career and I'm sure there's probably even a number of others that you came in contact with had to have had a major effect on you that is part of the reason why you started the writing and we'll get into that in just a moment but it must have been had a major impact on on you and your career
1: well so I mean it, it sounds like you, you think of just one person that you, you were present, I was present at the Regents Park bombing, I was present at um, the Iranian embassy siege when the special air service um, kicked out the squatters that had taken over the embassy. Um, I was present at the uh, Libyan embassy, where um, Libyan People's Bureau, as it was correctly called, where Yvonne Fletcher was shot. And then, and of course, yes, again, I was present at the Baltic Exchange bombing. You think, wow, that's an awful lot for just one person being present at. But the fact is that during that period, in that 20, 25 years when I was working in London, there were fairly regular um, occurrences of terrorism and bombings. There were an awful lot more that I wasn't at. I wasn't at the Harrods bombing, for example. I wasn't at the Bishop's Gate bombing and uh, many others. It's just that inevitably, with a, in a city, uh, if, you, if you're working in that area, statistically, you're, you're likely to come into contact with some. And perhaps I, I was unfortunate enough to be exposed to slightly more than average. But uh, I'm, I certainly knew people who were worse affected than I was.
0: When you start thinking about the time frame and you think about now... <laughs> I am kind of curious do you find that the number of incidents that occurred back then from a terrorist perspective is the same equal or greater that it is today because in a lot of ways it's become more sensationalized through media and everything or at least more people are more aware of it occurring so do you find that that's more the case, or do you find that it, it really is more frequent?
1: It's, it was more frequent then. Um, that is a fact. I mean, there, there were, you know, e- even worldwide, if, if you look at the, the, the kind of period from the late 70s through to the early 1990s, um, worldwide, European-wide, there were, there were a very large number of terrorist organizations, everybody from ETA, the Spanish group the Meinhofgang. there was Italian terrorism, uh, French, UK we had the IRA, uh, we, we even had animal rights groups setting off bombs. So there was an awful lot more um, small-scale, should we call it, terrorist activity going on. I mean, we, we, we forget about the Chechens. You know the hundreds of people that they killed in Russia. You know that those the Chechen terrorism has died off now. We we for, we forget about the terrorist cells that operated in Germany, which were going on. What's happened now, I think, is that um, the style of terrorism has changed, uh, and the type of attacks have changed. But the frequency, I think, has lessened, mm-hmm. and that's because I think that the security services are are much more professional than they used to be. Uh, there's a lot of attacks that plan that get intercepted. Um, there's, a, there's a lot more awareness amongst the public, take London for example, there's far more closed-circuit television, recorded closed-circuit television than there ever was. In the days of the IRA you could come into London, plant a bomb, and leave London and be completely unspotted. Nowadays that could not happen, you would be seen, you would be recorded on television and, and you would have to be extremely clever to avoid detection. So now we're, we're facing the threat of of people who are aware that the chances of detection are that much greater so the kind of terrorism we're dealing with now are people who don't care because their their plans to survive a terrorist bombing are don't exist survival doesn't isn't part of their plan whereas before in my day you know um, the hardest thing for the terrorism was getting the terrorists was getting away
2: do you think with those organizations that those terrorist organizations from before that have died down, do you feel that the people that contributed to that you know they don't want they don 't want to be a part of it anymore, so there's kind of that generational shift where you have the frequency and then now it's much there it's not happening from those organizations. Do you think it's because of the i guess watchdog perspective that we have now
1: yeah there is an element of that a lot of the people that are involved in it they have grown up they've matured. Um, but there, there's, there's still the people, um, the youngsters, who might be prepared to take those steps that those pe- the other people took in, the, in their younger days. But these days, the chances of them being caught or captured or intercepted are, are much, much greater. Um, the Intelligence services has, have accurate to, to data-gathering systems, intelligence-gathering systems that we could have only dreamed of it was like something out of Star Trek in the 1970s, or 80s. If you would describe that kind of thing, the kind of thing that they take for granted now, that we never had access to that kind of thing. So um, nowadays, yeah, I don't know because I'm not, I'm not involved in that anymore. But my guess would be there's an awful lot more going on that we don't know about.
3: I think this is a fascinating conversation comparing, you know, terrorist attacks from the 80s and 90s to what we see today. And, and I think, you know, you're, you're absolutely right, Matt. There's a, there's a huge shift in the mentality between uh, a member of an organization who wants to inflict casualties and survive to do it again to further his cause and a fatalistic type terrorist that we see all over the Middle East and it's spreading a lot of places into Europe and even the United States. Like we had a, a, a discovered a, an IED down in Texas just last week, I saw on the news, that was placed up underneath one of the or overpasses of one of the high, highways down there. Uh, but I, I wonder what your, your impression is of tactics used now to, to, to counter what we're seeing, at least in, in the U.K. I, I know a little bit about what we're doing in the States, but what, what you're doing in the U.K. to counter the current type of terrorist threat that you, you're experiencing.
1: Well, it, it's a fact that in, in my day, um, the, the kind of terrorists we were dealing with, they wanted to escape and survive. Um, death was not on their agenda. The suicidal attitude of, of terrorism these days has completely changed the, the, the ball game for, for the anti-terrorist agencies. The, the very concept of a suicide bomber was a completely alien concept when I was working. Uh, the, the very idea that somebody would do that was, was uh, a completely alien concept. So the fact that they're now having to deal with that kind of um, determination and ruthlessness on the part of people who are willing to sacrifice their own lives for their cause um, means that they they have to be looking at terrorist activity with a view to, as I said before, intercepting and preventing is far more important than reacting. Uh, in my in my day, we could react to a terrorist incident. Nowadays, uh, you can never react fast enough because um, they, they they will always strike somewhere, and as, as that old cliche isn't it? They only need to be lucky once.
2: So do you have a inflection of profiling because I know over here people are you know super sensitive about even saying anything about somebody who could possibly be a terrorist but I mean to counter that threat do they profile more
1: over? Yeah yeah, yeah, we do, you you see uh, probably one of the most overt forms of profiling at airports um, where people are coming in from certain countries. So there'll be certain countries, certain flights, which are identified as higher risk, and there'll be certain types of people on that who fit profiles. The liberals in this country wouldn't be comfortable with it, but the reality is that when you look at the statistics, and that's how profilers look at it, they're looking at the statistical probability of what that person looks like whether, and whether they're going to be uh, a risk or not. Profile will will identify certain ethnic groups. It will identify certain age groups For example, you do not see many suicide bombers who are over 50 years old It doesn't happen the the impressionable age is probably early mid teens to late 20s so those kind of narrowing of, of, of the risk parameters they look at those people and say Right, okay. Do you fit within the high risk levels? Is is the likelihood of different factors? Do you come from a certain ethnic group? Are you a certain age? Are are you on a certain flight? Have you come from a certain country? If all those factors start to combine, then you are profiled and you'd like to be intercepted.
0: One of the things you started doing to help you along the way in dealing with a lot of the trauma that you had seen is, well, first off, you went and received counseling, as I understand it. You know, we spoke about PTSD on another podcast and about one of the ways through the healing process is they have you actually start writing about the events, yeah. And so tell us a little bit about that and how that actually led into you becoming an author today.
1: Well, will you bear with me if it's a long story?
0: Sure, absolutely.
1: (laughs) Sorry, I apologize. Um, I'd have to take you back to 1984 to start off with, to the um, shooting in central London. I I was driving a a police response car in central London. um, And one of the jobs of this particular type of response car I was on was to do what we call ambulance escorts. So if um, somebody was injured and needed to get to um, a hospital in an ambulance on the hurry up, or needed a particularly smooth, slow run, because of the nature of their injuries, they needed to not stop, not have a jerky run, they needed to to move like that, then we would be given the job of doing this. This particular car I was manning in central London, this was our our type of job, the type of thing we would do. And we were called to a, a shooting incident in St James's Square in central London, and we were told that a police officer had been shot. What happened on the day was London was terribly badly snarled up because this incident had happened at the Libyan Embassy. Um, A police officer had been shot and um, we were assigned to escort the ambulance to uh, hospital. We arrived, we picked up the ambulance and we started escorting them to hospital. Now, Mm -hmm. the officer that was shot um, was Yvonne Fletcher. Now, at the time when I was escorting the ambulance that she was in to hospital, I didn't realise that sitting in the back of the ambulance was her fiancé and, of course, Yvonne, and both of them had been at my house about six weeks or eight weeks prior to that, um, when my ex-wife and I had had a housewarming party, because Yvonne was a very good friend of my ex-wife and a friend of mine. So when we we escorted to the hospital, um, we left the ambulance there. She she was taken into the emergency department, uh, and we left it there, and we were assigned to other duties. The Libyan embassy was being, Libyan People's Bureau, sorry, was being uh, sealed off, and we were, I I forget exactly what we were assigned to do, but anyway, that evening I went home, and it came on the news that uh, a WPC had been shot to death, and of course a picture came up on the television, and then my ex-wife and I realised who it was, and it was uh, one of our friends. So that was a very, very um, traumatic evening for us. My wife went to Yvonne's funeral. I didn't go. I don't remember exactly why I didn't go, but we moved on with our lives. Um, I was involved in doing different jobs and things like that. I wasn't involved in the inquiry trying to identify the killers of Yvonne. Many, many years later, uh, and I'm moving on to now about 1994, so this was post the Baltic exchange bomb that we were just talking about, I was dealing with... Um, an accidental death, as it turned out, in an area called Stoke Newington in North London, as a as a uniform inspector. So I was given the initial job of carrying out the initial investigation into this sudden death, where a girl had fallen from a, a high um, rooftop party. She'd sat on a parapet, um, probably intoxicated, leant over, fallen into the street below, and killed herself. When I arrived. She was being worked on in the the street by the paramedics, and I went upstairs to um, speak to the uh, people who were also at the party, and we were going to have to carry out an investigation. Um, One of the first things I did when I got to the rooftop was I went to the scene where the girl had fallen off to look at it, and I leant over the wall to look down into the street to where this girl was being worked on in the street by the paramedics. Um, And as I did that, the scene I saw... Was the scene of Yvonne Fletcher lying on her back, excuse me lying on her back, being worked on by um, ambulance staff in St James's Square ten years previously, and it was one of those very 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 odd moments where your eyes have told you you've seen something, but your brain tells you how can you possibly have seen what you've just seen, and so you step back. Um, look around you, think, has anybody else seen what I've seen? Of course, everybody is carrying on as normal. You're just completely on your own. Nobody's noticing that you're behaving slightly oddly. So you look back, and what you see is what's really there, the girl being worked on by the paramedics. There's a very, very weird situation where you, you, you think to yourself, what the hell's the matter with me that I actually saw so clinically clearly something which I actually never saw at the time it happened? Um, but I had this vision of something in my mind, and very odd. Um, anyway, after that I started to get um, uh, flashbacks to um, the various bombing incidents i have been involved in, particularly to the Baltic Exchange and to Regent's Park. Um, I would have interrupted sleep, very, very poor um, sleep patterns, night sweats, got to the point where my nightly routine would involve putting a, a towel uh, underneath the, the duvet because I knew that at some time during the night I would wake up just soaked in sweat uh, and it got a bit tiresome having to change the sheets. <laughs> so we used to put a towel down. So I, I would put the towel, the towel was there, I could dry myself off, um, put another towel down and go back to sleep or try and go back to sleep. Sometimes it was a bit of a challenge. Um, and I used to find that this, this, this interruption to, the, to my sleep patterns was, was starting to change me. I was becoming irritable. Um, I suffered something called hyper-vigilance where um, I would go into like supermarkets and things like that and just feel very comfortable having lots of people around me. Started to become over-analytical over with regards to perceived threats which were nonsensical. And then one day I was travelling home from work and I had um, what I thought was a heart attack. Uh, bear in mind, I was only 40 at the time, and I had these massive pains in my chest going down my arm. To me as a layman, it felt exactly like a heart attack. Luckily for me, I was quite near to my um, my doctor's practice, so I went straight into the doctors, told them what had happened. Um, they put me on monitors, called um, paramedics. Paramedics came. Everything started to sort of be a slightly less panicky as, than I expected it, compared to... A 40-year-old guy having a heart attack and um, I started to realize that you know they were sort of talking amongst themselves and clearly looking at the readings in relation to my heart and one of them gave me um, a a really sugary solution to drink Um, and and eventually they started taking the things off and uh, the doctor came out and he said you've not had a heart attack he said I think you better come into my office and we'll have a chat so I went into his office and um, that was the first time I'd even heard of a panic attack no idea what it was. So we started talking. He started saying to me, like, you know, well, obviously, this is this is a pretty unusual thing to happen. Some of you are young age. Tell me, do you sleep all right? Inevitably, the questions came and I started to explain that, no, I didn't sleep all right. Do you get any problems? Yes, I do. And we started to talk. And he said, right, he said, I think I need to um, ask you to see a counsellor. So um, I was referred to a counsellor Uh, and that was the first time I'd ever heard of post-traumatic stress disorder. Um, This would have been about 1996, 97 I think, when this happened. Um, I'd never heard of it before. Um, She is the one who started talking to me uh, and I would find that when I started to open up to her I would become overwhelmed by emotion. When she asked me to relate experiences, to describe emotions, to describe things I was going through, things that had happened to me, uh, I was simply well up and um, we weren't getting anywhere. So one day she was moved to say to me, I would like you to write down your experiences um, and go away, sit at the computer, type out and print out um, the kind of things that answers to questions that you're talking about in The counselling sessions. So I did. um, And I found it quite therapeutic, in fact, writing it out. um, It was quite emotional at times. and There were times where I had to stop writing and times where I had to go back to it. Um, But I made myself go back, I made myself keep writing. And several months into these counselling sessions, doing this writing, she said to me um, that she really liked the way I write. And had I ever considered writing a book? Now, when we talked about it further, what she actually meant was uh, a, a reference book, something non-fictional, some kind of um, guidance to help benefit others. And um, no, I wasn't, yeah, I had no aspirations of becoming an author, none at all. It was, it wasn't, wasn't on my life plan at all. Um, so I, I kind of poo-pooed it and said, no, no, I'm not going to be doing that. So um, anyway, to cut a long story short, um, I ended up leaving the police. I never went back um, after the diagnosis. Um, and when I was retired, I, I moved down to, to Wales from London, where I am now. Uh, and my wife and I um, opened a boarding kennels looking after cats and dogs, which was a bit of a hobby, Which is, and I found it... Really, quite enjoyable, and it was totally different from anything that I'd ever done. Um, a much more different lifestyle. We lived out in the uh, countryside, very rural, very much quieter form of life. Um, and I started um, at the behest of my brother, who said to me, Why don't you have a little go with that, that book? So I started writing it, um, and I did a little bit here, a little bit there, and over the course of probably about 10 years, I put the bones of a book together, but not really with any intention of doing anything with it. And then, God bless her, my wife added that she wanted the kennels, but not me. <laughs> so uh, I was divorced <laughs> um, and left with time on my hands. So I was in my mid fifties um, with um, no real career as to what I was going to do. Uh, the, the business that had supported me was, was being taken over by her. Uh, And again, my brother came back to me and said to me, why don't you finish off that book? So uh, I finished off the book.
0: So how does this book relate to your experience? You said you didn't want to write a book that's more of a reference book. I'm taking it you wrote more of a fiction book and presented the character as a detective?
1: Yeah. What motivated me to write was um, we had a series of riots over here um i don't know if you ever heard about it it was placed in a place called tottenham um and a policeman called keith blakelock was stabbed and hacked to death by rioters now bear in mind as we were talking about robert earlier on um we were unarmed policemen were completely unarmed all we had was little batons to protect ourselves one was badly hurt and another, another one was, was stabbed and hacked to death. Well, all he had to protect himself was a flimsy plastic shield and a little wooden baton. Uh, and he, like many of his colleagues, found himself isolated, dealing with people with guns, shooting at them, knives, machetes, um, and all they had to protect themselves. And this, this poor lad was um, isolated from the group that he was with. Uh, he fell on some slippery grass on the ground, and he was attacked and killed. The relevance of that story is the fact that a lot of other officers who were present at that day suffered as a result of their exposure to the extreme violence that they saw that night and in the aftermath of that incident they were asked to do um, statements, uh, written statements describing what had happened to them. They were evidence gathering statements Um, and a lot of their statements were really, really poor. Um, They would write Things like, I went to the Broadfall Water Farm Estate in Tottenham. Guys put um, petrol bombs and threw them at us and tried to stab me and kill me, and eventually I went home and I finished work. And that was like the standard of their statement. It was really not good enough. Now, I was a sergeant at the time in northwest London, um, and I was given the job of interviewing these officers and getting better statements from them, uh, covering... The kind of thing that they'd seen, witnessed, if they've witnessed any offences, whether they've seen firearms, seen people hurt, did they know anybody, did they recognise suspects, did they give descriptions? There was one particular PC, um, Andrew's name was, who um, was a Scottish lad, and he, no matter how hard I tried, I could not get a decent statement out of him. Now, at the time, he was labelled as a bad egg, bad officer uncooperative, surly, disrespectful, started drinking, started turning up for work late. Um, Eventually, he was disciplined for drink driving and sacked. Years later, when I was undergoing my own counselling for post-traumatic stress, I realised then what had been wrong with him. And at the time, I knew I'd let him down. So I'd let him down because I hadn't realised what was wrong with him. As an organisation, we hadn't realised what was wrong with him, what was wrong with his peers, um, and I promised myself then that I was going to try and do my level best to explain to people in some kind of way that this particular condition affects all kinds of people in all kinds of different ways, and it's a very serious thing, and something needs to be done about it. Um, and it occurred to me at the time that if I if I wrote about it in a non-fiction way, the chances of a Um, an ordinary police inspector from North London writing a book about post-traumatic stress, writing a book which actually had any effect whatsoever on the establishment was pretty slim. Um, But I thought to myself, if I could write um, a fictional book, a crime thriller of some kind, which became popular, that in a subliminal way, I could get that message across through the medium of fiction. And so that's what I decided to do.
0: That's great. So it's not based on even any real life story that you've then taken and expanded and made fiction. It's you've created the character, the situation, the environment that they're in, and then infused that with the trauma and experience that this individual is going through and and placing that within that. So people who are reading it can understand the character, what PTSD is, without maybe even possibly realizing that. Yeah,
1: It's... It's fiction, right. but um, in, in, in loose terms, you could call it faction. There is, there's, there's a lot of reality in it. A lot of the, the incidents I describe in it are based on real events uh, and my personal experience of real events. A lot of the characters in it are real people, are based on real people. Uh, and, and certainly the symptoms and the experiences that the main characters go through are um, very much based on my own personal experiences. The character is not me, but a lot of the things he does and a lot of the way he acts and a lot of the way he is affected by things are very much reflected and a result of my own personal experiences.
0: That's great. And have you found that the people that are reading it are understanding PTSD much better through your books? And is that kind of the feedback that you're getting now?
1: It is. It's it's been, can I call it a pleasant surprise? It's been a nice surprise, a good surprise. Um, um, We have an organisation over here that deals with um, PTSD affecting veterans, military veterans. It's called Combat Stress. I've been invited by them to go and talk to veterans. They came along to my book launch. Um, We have a, a very large charity called Help for Heroes. I got invited to go along and meet to them and talk to them. So gradually, yes, the word, the word is getting out within the United Kingdom that the book is around. And people are really re- reading it, reading the story and learning about the condition by reading the story. Uh, and what I've done is in, in, in book one, which I called Wicked Game, um, I've written about the character and the traumatic incidents that he's go, he goes through that trigger his post-traumatic stress problems. Book two, which I've just finished, we write about the way those symptoms manifest themselves and where they start to affect his family life and his career. Um, And then book three, which I'm just about to start, will be the the, um, trilogy, the third part of the trilogy, will deal with uh, the treatment and the way he addresses his PTSD and the options he looks at to try and recover.
0: That's fascinating. I mean, you're taking something that's an issue that even in America, I think people misdiagnose or misunderstand those who are not affected by it uh, themselves, either through a family member or a loved one or a friend. They likely don't know what what it really is and the effects of it. And um, I, I think even something like that would be helpful within America to help understand a lot of what individuals who suffer with post-traumatic stress are dealing with, you know, or what, what they're affected. Why is it that they might be acting a certain way, like you said, become misdiagnosed? In a lot of cases in America, a lot of physicians end up thinking the best way to help that is through medication. And it's one of the things that we talked about in our last PTSD show was around how over-medication is also not the solution. It's putting a Band-Aid on the actual problem you
1: know it is it is a aid i mean I, I was i was put on medication i was put on a um a product called serotonin or seroxat i think it was called seroxat which essentially um replenishes the serotonin in the brain which um which the exposure to adrenaline uh, has eaten up um but i mean i've i've got a should we say a thought on um what the future holds for ptsd which i'll share with you um Guys who, who, um, should we take the military, for example, Um, you spend a lot of time uh, training your bodies for very high levels of fitness. You develop your muscles, you develop your heart, you develop your metabolism, your lung capacity, uh, your stamina, um, you eat well, you become very healthy. All your organs are supported by a very healthy operating body. But we do absolutely nothing at the moment to train the brain to cope with trauma, nothing at all. The brain is like an organ, it's like any any other organ in your body, your heart, your lungs, your liver, but we do nothing to make people's brains fit to deal with what they're going to have to deal with when they get into, um, into battle, for example. Um, I think that the problem with um, the stigma attached with mental illness, and let's face it, PTSD is a form of mental illness, is the fact that we um, spend an awful lot of time getting these people extremely fit to face um, and deal with warfare and battle and that kind of thing. But absolutely nothing, as I I repeat myself, absolutely nothing done is to make their brains fit for purpose. And so they're exposed. The brain has to cope with things that it's not prepared for. And, And then when it doesn't cope, like any other organ, um... If your heart is exposed to some kind of disease and your heart goes wrong, if your lungs get exposed to something and it goes wrong, no, nobody has any problem with lung disease or heart disease or something like that. So that's a fact of life. But when a, a, you get a, a brain we get, which gets affected by external events which cause the brain to misfunction, then it, it gets this stigma of mental illness. So therefore, there must be something wrong with you. Uh, and I think we what we, in the future, what we owe it to um, with our... All kinds of services which are exposed to any form of trauma is we we owe it to them to help them prepare for exposure to that kind of thing, not just by making them physically fit, but by making them mentally fit so they're ready mentally. I don't know how to do it, but what I would say is it it needs to be done.
2: I I think it's really incredible that when you said, you know, throughout the process, we make ourselves fit for battle. And and I'm sure Mike, you can attest to this too, is that we've spent so much time hard charging to defeat the enemy, you know, especially with Americans. And we just, you know, and especially in special operations is you go out there and you find a terrorist and you just continue to do that regardless of how many limbs your buddies have lost or how many guys that you've actually lost. Like you said, there's no, you don't take care of your brain. You don't, you don't give yourself the time to actually compartmentalize what happened and the details of the events that we go through are not, you know, especially with the police force and the military, you don't really it's not something that normal civilians deal with. Like you said, and Mike, and you've probably seen it just over in your career how much the the signs and symptoms of, of soldiers that, you know, have come down with PTSD, and as leaders, to identify those things and actually tell people to take a step back.
3: Yeah, I, I think it's really hard, Kat. I mean, those those symptoms are often masked, and other other types of behaviors that we we tend to we tend to see first. But you know, we we have changed things over the course of many years on how we train. Uh, if you if you've read Grossman's books on killing and on combat. Um, You'll learn a little bit about how, you know, back in the Civil War, we used to train guys by shooting at bullseye-type targets and we had guys that wouldn't commit to combat. They would put themselves in danger by providing aid, they would reload uh, for their buddies, but they wouldn't shoot with the intent to kill anybody because they were never conditioned to that. And over the course of changing to E-type silhouettes and the crazy Ivan targets that we use, we condition our brains to shoot people as opposed to just being a marksman, we're now conditioned to put those rounds on a target that's intended to be a human being. Uh, but on the, you know, throughput, on the on the far end of it, we don't do anything, like you said, Matt, we don't do anything for the moral injury that that causes uh, of a lifelong, I've done, and I've done this for 30 years, but you're left with significant moral injury, having been trained to do that, having gone to combat and, and done it and survived, and other friends of yours haven't survived, but I think you're right. I don't know what the answer is. I know the Warrior Rangers Foundation is doing doing some things that that are helping guys with some of the problems, uh, particularly with TBI and PTSD. But as far as a mass training program, you're right. There's nothing. I mean, there's we're, we're, we're kind of dealing with it on the back end as opposed to how we've evolved to, to condition people to train uh, for combat.
1: I don't think it's going to come in the short term. Uh, I, I'm just I'm just hoping that the direction in which things are going is that it, it, it is being identified and that eventually a system is going to come up with addressing mental health fitness for purpose as opposed to just physical fitness. I mean the way the condition was described to me by my doctor and my counsellor because I was very resistant to going on medication when I first started. And when she explained it to me in mechanical terms, the nature of work I'd been doing meant that I was working in a highly adrenalized environment. And so you were were living on the edge all the time, a permanent state of excitement. Wonderful. Loved it. Never thought to myself that whilst you're doing that, it is eating up the serotonin in your brain, because the adrenaline-charged way your body is working all the time, your body is not supposed to work like that. So there has to be um, a reaction. And the reaction within the brain is the serotonin levels within the brain drop as the adrenaline levels stay high. Which you might think well okay so the serotonin levels drop. Well what we don't realize is that as, as individuals is that those serotonin levels within your brain are the conduits which make the brain function smoothly. And if you don't have the required levels of serotonin in your brain, then you will start to get brain malfunction. Very small scale to start off with, but your, your judgment processes might not be quite right, or your memory might be affected, or your decision-making ability might be not quite as sharp as it used to be. And so there'll be, there'll be a good gradual depression of brain function. And the, the problem is, of course, is people like me say, you're telling me I've got depression? Um, I don't feel depressed, I feel fine, you know, I'm, I'm, what's, there's nothing wrong with me. And what the, dep- the counsellor said to me is, no, no, depression does not mean you feel mad. It means that your brain activity is not as efficient as it should be. It is depressed, lowered. When she explained it to me in those terms, I was far more prepared to accept that I would take a medical supplement in order to get my brain back where it should be—serotonin, in my case.
2: This is like taking creatine or protein for your muscles, but, Exactly. and and it, what's interesting about that you saying that is now throughout your therapy, have you found and I guess this is part of the trying to combat the the long-term effects. Like you said, you gradually you have this depression from the serotonin levels, but do you feel um, and I, I know this would need some scientific study, but during say during the event the traumatic event that happened that having having someone take you aside after the fact like immediately after the fact and and having a a moment of to decompress and actually i wouldn't say force but kind of force the conversation and let the feelings out instead of masking it and then charging ahead to the next you know on the next mission or the next you know kind of having a a a mental babysitter come over and say, "Okay, now we're going to talk about these things, whether or not you like it or not." Yeah. So
1: when my first count, my counselor first tried to get me talking about things, I was I was very re- resistant. Uh, kept things very close to my chest. Uh, I think, like many many people who've been in is that kind of situations, you you are aware that talking about it is going to be distressing, and so you don't talk about it. You just go and have a beer and have a laugh about it, and sort of paper over the cracks to some extent. Talking about it was uncomfortable. When I started talking about it, I hated talking about it. What I've learned is that getting me to write about it wasn't an accident. Um, It's actually now a recognised form of therapy. Um, And how it seems to work is like this. The more you talk about something, the more a counsellor can get you to to vocalise your um, experiences and concerns and emotions, the less upsetting it is. The more familiar you come with talk about it, the more comes out and the less upsetting it is. Writing about it once is like the equivalent of 10 sessions talking about it, because you do it slowly and you go into it in such depth. And so what, what I've found has happened to me um, over years really, is the more I've talked about it, the easier it's become to talk about it. For example, we talked earlier on, Rob, about the death of Yvonne Fletcher when she was shot. A few years ago, I wouldn't have been able to talk about that at all. It's only in in recent weeks where I've been published and the book is out, where somebody asked me the question, what motivated you to write, that I first talked about that situation with the, the the policeman from the riot who'd suffered post-traumatic stress. And the first time I talked about that, I cried. Um, And I was overwhelmed by emotion because I was revisiting something that I hadn't talked about for a very long time. I've now talked about that many times, and each time I talk about it, it becomes easier. Uh, And I put this theory to our veterans charity, Combat Stress, about the familiarization effect and they said yes it's absolutely right and then they explained about the writing therapy to me this is why we get you to write because it's worth 10 lots of sessions of actually talking it and of course when when they they corroborate something which you're feeling within yourself and a a professional says yes you're absolutely right this is why it works it's quite reassuring
0: I I can see how this whole thing can be very therapeutic, having different experiences. But any time you go through a a traumatic experience, if you're able to talk about it more, as you mentioned, if you're going to write about it, you're going to have to think about it in such great detail. I I can definitely see how it can be very therapeutic for you. And and you said there's going to be a trilogy. I'm, I'm taking it that that's not going to be the end of it. You're going to have to... Look at either a new character or you're going to continue this on like the Bourne Identity uh, type of thing. The whole Bourne series, right? Surely you.
1: A... I don't know who wrote Jason Bourne, but I wouldn't mind having his income. <laughs> <laughs> Perhaps if I'd been a few years younger, I could have had the time to enjoy it as well. That'd yeah. of it. Let me give you a little analogy to the, the, the effect that the writing has for you. You know when you do, um, on a computer, um, you do a defragmentation of the hard disk? Um, and you get that uh, that icon that comes up uh, on the screen to show an un or, sorry a fragmented hard disk before you do your defragment right right You've got all those little blocks of different colors all over the place
0: right and it shows you how that's going to kind of align those together
1: yep yeah and then you do your defragmentation and after the defragmentation all those blocks have been brought into more accessible places so that your operating system can access them and recall them more quickly and it looks far more structured and organized. That's what writing did for me. For, for my brain, the operating system of my brain, see, our post-writing seemed to operate much more smoothly. Uh, my thinking processes were smoother. Uh, I slept better. I was a nicer person. Every, everything seemed to actually start together. And what it felt to me was like that situation of a defragment where I was able to think more quickly because I could access the information more quickly. I was able to decide on things more smoothly and more quickly because I could I could access memories and experiences more, more smoothly, more quickly. So it was like a defragmentation of a hard disk. That was the effect. That, and that's the only, people have asked me to describe the effect that writing has. And that's the best analogy I've been able to come up with.
0: I think that's a great way of describing it. Uh, actually, I've never heard that before. Where is it that they can find your book? Now, I know Kobo is one of those locations. Where is Amazon, well, another opportunity? And
1: It came out in paperback in the United States about two weeks ago. Okay. And I just
2: got it on Kindle.
1: Oh, wonderful. I, I bought
2: it on Kindle.
1: I <laughs> enjoyed that. Um, it's on Kindle, it's on Kobo, it's on it's on all the e-readers. Um, um, I don't know, apart from Amazon, which bookshops um, in the United States have it. So if you find out, by all means, let me know. You bet. Uh, do you have Waterstones in the United States? Uh,
0: I don't know that I've ever heard of that one. Uh, we have Barnes & Noble, which is another big one here that books are I typically think- found on.
1: I think &
0: have it. Definitely encourage people to go and pick up the book, learn more about the character and how this individual is experiencing PTSD and living through that. You're going to learn a lot more, obviously, based on what Matt said about the effects, what someone that you may know may be experiencing from the type of trauma, either coming back as a veteran or maybe having served as a civil servant in some way police department or something of that nature where they may have been exposed to different types of trauma. Matt, thank you so much for taking time out of your busy schedule to come on here. You've got three books, so I guess that means at least one's out, the other one's getting ready to come out, and you're writing a third one. So we've got a couple more opportunities for you to come on and talk about the character and how that's growing, because I think it's really fascinating the way you've been able to write about this and how you're doing it in these various stages. So it'll be really cool to get you back on again and Talk about things maybe you can't reveal to us at this point about what happens in book two. <laughs> <laughs>
1: yeah. right. uh, I'll tell you briefly, book two, obviously the kind of situations that the, the character is exposed to in book one, the reality and the terrorism and the violence that he's, he's involved in is he finds that when he goes back to work, people don't want to work with him. He, he's persona non grata. And, there's, and um, I, I try to make it... As realistic as possible, and think to myself, well, you know, in in the real world, if if somebody was involved in these kind of things, could he just slot straight back into work? You know, could he? Uh, And I think in the real world the answer is no. You'd be a a bit of a pariah amongst your colleagues because people would say, well, hold on a minute, You you know, six months ago people were trying to kill you. I don't think I really want to work with you. And this is what he finds: he goes back to work, and nobody wants to work with him. So he has to deal with that particular situation. That's
0: great. So has your agent told you to lay off the Harley and don't ride it anymore because they want to make sure you write book three?
1: (laughs) (laughs) No, no, he hasn't, Okay.
2: (laughs) Matt, I just wanted to let you know, like, your story and you doing this is so, it could help so many veterans. And I really, I really hope, like how you said with your therapy of, you know, the more you talk about it, the better, the more healing, I guess you could say. And any opportunity, you get to come to the States and talk to vets or talk I to vets love, over there, love, you love, love. are so United, impactful.
1: The United States is um, a bit of a conundrum to me because it, uh, in, in terms of writing and in terms of a market, it's, it's so much bigger than the United Kingdom. And yet it's a very hard market to crack. Uh, and for for um, a, a United Kingdom author to um, establish a niche in the United States is uh, is a is a tough ask. It really is. And um, whether I'll do it, I don't know. I mean, um, greater men than me have have, have failed. <laughs> so, hey, look at Harry know,
0: Potter. Here, you know, you never know.
1: Never know, do you? Never know. But it, <laughs> it, is, a, it, it is a tough thing. I mean, it, 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 there's an awful lot of competition. There's a lot of people writing. So um, it would be nice, it, um, and uh, if I one day get to come over and ride my Harley down Route 66 once more for the purposes of doing a book signing in Los Angeles instead of just... <laughs> doing something <laughs> it
2: incredible.
1: That would be pretty incredible. Well, let, let, let me leave, leave you with a, a, a passing analogy, which, which is something I was talking about with our, our combat stress people the week before last, and it's about recovery from PTSD. And uh, I was sitting talking to the veterans and uh, a couple of the soldiers asked me about recovery because they were quite alarmed to discover that I'd been dealing with, my, with PTSD myself for over 20 years. Um, and of course, they're at the early stages and they are thinking to themselves, Oh, God, you know, I don't really want to be having these kind of problems I'll be having in 20 years time. And so I was doing my best to um, uh, allay their fears as best I could. And the analogy I came up with was describing um, recovery from PTSD as like a game of snakes and ladders. I don't know if you're are you familiar with the game. Can't, it's, it, it's a, yeah,
2: it's for, for like children.
1: It's a, it's a children's board game. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You have 100 squares, small squares, and you start off at number one and you go up the board till eventually you reach square 100. And as you, as you go up the board um, using the dice, um, you come across ladders, which will take you further up the board and sometimes you come across snakes which will slide you down the board. Now, as you play the game, uh, it's, it's a dice game, you throw a number, you land on a certain square, if there's a ladder you go up to the top of it, if there's a snake you come down to the bottom of it. Um, the difference between the board game and the recovery from PTSD is that those ladders represent opportunities to recover. And so, those they might be writing therapy, they might be uh, some kind of drug. There could be all kinds of means to recover from it. There are different things for you, as the board player, as a recovering PTSD victim, to try and see how how far that ladder takes you. Some ladders will work for you, others won't. So you don't quite know how how far up the board they will take you. Similarly, with the snakes, as you as you travel along along the board through time you'll hit snakes. And the difference between the board game and real life, of course, is that in real life you won't see those snakes until you step on them. And at first they'll take you straight back to the beginning and you'll feel like you're starting all over again. But as you continue to progress, you will learn to identify the snakes. And sometimes, although they might catch you out, you'll learn how to jump off them a bit early so they won't take you so far as they used to. And other times you'll be so good at spotting them, you'll just hop right over them. And so you'll find that your progress up the board will improve as your ability to identify those snakes which badly affect you and those ladders which are going to affect, give you a boost, take you nearer to the top. But the reality of it is that um, you never know how far up that board you actually are. Um, Because my experience is that square 100 is probably going to be your final day on Earth. Uh, and that you will always have PTSD, and you always need to be aware that those snakes are there, but you also need to be aware that those ladders will always be there and that you'll always be on that road to recovery. That's my analogy.
0: It's a great way to uh, end the show. Appreciate it again, Matt, for you being on and taking time out. Love to have you again in the future.
1: At least. Robert, Cat Mike. Thank you good so good, much. Good night, Olivia.
0: Please be sure to follow us at iTunes, leave a rating, and your comments. And if you don't have an Apple product, no worries. You can follow us at SoundCloud, download the app. And if you're on Twitter, be sure to follow us there at mentors, the number four, M-I-L.